1: Welcome back to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. My name is Laura Spath and I am joined by my friend and co-host Judy Cho. And today we're gonna talk about babies. We're gonna talk about pregnancy a little bit, the formula shortage that's happening currently and what that really means for parents, what that means for um, kind of from the government's perspective. And then also we're gonna talk about uh, C-sections versus natural births a little bit. Judy had shared some content recently about that and- Obviously, it's a very sensitive subject that people have very personal feelings towards. And so um, we want to have more of an open discussion about
0: that today. You know, just to put a disclaimer on this episode, this is not about shaming. This is not about, you know, I'm better than you type of attitude. It's really just sharing what is ideal for in a perfect world. But that may not apply to you perfectly and it may not um, happen in your situation. And that's okay. It's just to have the conversation of what is optimal but that doesn't necessarily mean it will always translate to real life.
1: And we go into this conversation knowing that like everybody has the best intentions for their children. All parents want to do is like, fight for their kids and raise amazing children. And we know that everything that we do through the pregnancy and the delivery and the raising of our kids is all done with the best intentions. And we do what we can with the information that we know. I wish I could go back and change my health before I got pregnant, or I wish I could change the way that I ate while I was pregnant and I can't. And so now I can take that information moving forward and do what is best for my kids, like where I know it is now, but we can't You know, we can't go back and change things, um, but it doesn't, you know, which is why I think people are, it's such a personal thing that, that a lot of these things are tied to, um, which makes the conversations a lot harder. So hopefully we can balance this conversation today and give some good
0: context. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this formula shortage. I actually seriously think I live under a rock (laughs) and no idea it was happening. And then Laura, you mentioned it you know, what's going on with this formula shortage? Um, maybe a like a high level summary.
1: Yeah. So unfortunately due to like so many things, we saw the same thing happening with beef. Like this is so funny, but because of government regulations, a lot of these large manufacturers are consolidated and there's mm-hmm. like three or four main formula companies and that's it. Um, so of these four formula companies, the same thing happened with beef. Like there's four major processing plants. One of them shut down and we had this huge national beef shortage um, like early in, you know, like the middle of 2020 or somewhere around there. But the same thing is happening with formula where one of the largest formula processors uh, or manufacturers had an FDA recall. They shut everything down. And now there's no, essentially most places you can't find formula. And the ones that you can find are kind of the most basic. So the babies who are hypoallergenic they're needing sensitive like all of the specialty formulas the more expensive ones the more sensitive ones for the babies that are the sickest are really hard to find in stores right now Um, there's actually studies that show that fewer than 35 percent of american babies are exclusively breastfed at six months old and only 15 percent of american babies are still breastfed at age one so I, I here's the I'm obviously a big advocate of breastfeeding and I um, think that we are missing on breastfeeding support in our country, which is like a cultural issue that we don't have enough support systems in place for women who are breastfeeding. Number one, We don't have education in place for women who are breastfeeding. We also expect parents. We live in a society where you have to have two working parents to be able to pay your bills. And so women go back to work so quickly that breastfeeding is not really as um, easy to do. So all those things are to be said, right? There is an... There's a formula, obviously, I'm trying to think of how to say this. There's obviously a major issue with formula going. And I have seen some people in some um, online circles, in the political circles of people saying, even like some famous people tweeting out, like, do you know what's free? Breastfeeding is free. Maybe you should quit relying on formula and go back to breastfeeding. And to be honest, I think that's pretty disgusting at this point. Like it is really unkind and unfair and absolutely unhelpful in this moment where you can't find food to feed your baby to talk about the fact that like, well, I guess you should have breastfed. Okay. We're going to get into like talking about nutritional differences, but how is that helping anybody or anything in this moment? What it should do. First of all, the first and foremost thing we should do is like fix the freaking formula shortage so that we keep babies alive. That's what needs to happen. And some comments from like The administration talking about how mothers are hoarding formula and that's the problem. Like, I'm sorry if I was feeding my kid formula right now and that was keeping them alive and I saw three containers in the store, I would buy all three and I would go look for more because that's what's keeping my child alive. Okay, so sorry, I'm getting a little worked up about this. (laughs) Like those that is not a helpful rhetoric to be having right now is talking about like breastfeeding is better. What we should be doing first and foremost is fixing the formula shortage. And then to make sure this type of thing doesn't happen in the future, obviously I'm my political stance is to get rid of government regulation. So we wouldn't be dealing with these things in the first place, but that's a separate conversation. But then it's to work on changing the support system that's in place for women in general, once they have their babies to be able to have breastfeeding more acceptable because The hospitals are pushing formula from day one. The the education is not in place for breastfeeding. It is not easy to find a lactation consultant. It is often not covered by insurance. Like there's just so many roadblocks in place for a support system for women to have. So I think those are future conversations that you can have. And I'm, I'm kind of done ranting now. Sorry. We're going to get into the nutritional differences, but I want to make sure that what doesn't come across as we start talking about the nutritional differences between formula and breastfeeding is anybody saying right now, like the answer to the formula short is, is like, well, I guess you should breastfeed your baby because that is not helpful.
0: There are so many thoughts. So when I first had my first son, I knew nothing about nutrition and wellness. And um, I mean, I was plant-based then that's as much as I knew, but my son had higher bilirubin levels. So he had um, jaundice their response to me was you need to have him on formula as much as i didn't know much um you're right they were pushing formula from day 1 and i said no no and that's how i ended up doing exclusive pumping with my first child which is probably part of the reason i got sick i did exclusive pumping because i wanted to prove to the doctors that he was getting enough milk and nutrition but most people would just go okay fine um i'll use formula and i mean i had to do it round the clock for him to have enough milk so i literally for 6 months woke up or pumped every three hours around the clock. So yes, there is a part of the problem with, from the very beginning, they are pushing formula. I think there's also an issue with, I didn't know that people were saying, well, people should just breastfeed. Uh, That is ridiculous because if you haven't breastfed for even a few weeks, your milk is almost next to nothing. And if your kid is four months and you haven't been breastfeeding, I mean, where are you gonna get the prolactin to produce the milk? our governmental system in terms of maternity leave is horrible. There are some countries that the average is six months. And then in other countries, it's one year, and we get maybe six weeks. And it's only and a lot of it is not paid, they give you the opportunity to take the six weeks off, but it's not even paid. And so you see a lot of these infant daycares, it starts at six weeks. And I think it's really sad that we don't have even standard care in terms of Maternity leave and addressing that, because I do think that
1: round the clock feeding and is a lot of the reason why women end up starting to supplement formula at night because there's not yeah. a support system in place. And like you said, it made you crazy to be up all hours of the night. And right. and I think that there's definitely that element there. Um, I think long term we have to change the way that we support women in the in this process and the and the education that's being provided. Um, but yeah, you're so right earlier, like you mentioned, like. People can't go back and change their minds at this point or go back and um, and adjust that
0: you know, like start breastfeeding again all of a sudden. If we don't fix the core root cause issue in this, which is that we have a broken system that does not support mothers that are working, if we accept that new moms just if you can't breastfeed, it's okay, use formula at least we're caring for um, our child and happy mom equals happy child and that level of toxic In my opinion, positivity, it's we're not getting to the root cause issue. And the root cause issue is that we need to change our rules and regulations of the care we provide for maternity leave and for moms to have the ability to not only support the child and we need to recover. And some moms are literally going back to work within a week because they need the money. And that is the broken thing. So if people get upset enough, then maybe we can finally get to the root cause issue. I think that's how we can change things. When we don't accept status quo, that's how change can occur. And that's why I'm not the biggest fan of that whole positive movement. Some of us need a use formula, but I think if we just accept things as status quo, that's where, I mean, our society becomes the way it is today.
1: Yeah. And I think that the shortage is coming now based on the regulations that are in place. Like there's a lot of ways to, you know, it's, without having this government regulation, like it's the formula company's job to make money and have a successful business. And so they're going to ensure that they have a quality product. And when we have everything so regulated down to the fact that only four manufacturers can be the ones that are producing this product, like that's where we get into a problem. And we've seen this happening in industry after industry. And it's one thing to like have beef be hard to find at the store, but you can find other things. But like, this is a product that's like keeping babies alive. And it's so... Crazy that this is the regulation that's happening, Um, but kind of to like so the, there's a graphic that's going around right now about like uh, I don't know I mean it's basically from the 60s of like a homemade formula and so all all that to say to wrap that up we want to talk more about the nutritional aspect of formula at this point um, and the hopefully the growth that can happen over time you know the ingredients the the fix the answer is we need more support for women after pregnancy. We also need better quality formulas for when those things happen. When someone physically can't nurse for whatever reason, first of all, we need to support them more to the point that there's like, we exhaust all other options, but there will always forever need to be uh, a way to feed babies. That's not breastfeeding. We have so many circumstances where we need to be able to feed babies. And the problem is, The formula that exists currently is full of junk that goes against what we know now as being healthy for us. It's full of crap ingredients um, and full of things that are really not helping, you know, you have a long, successful gut health and all of those things in the future. So again, it's not about saying like you should, you know, breastfeeding is better for you. It's saying that we need better formula options for the future that have better ingredients. Um, this one from the 60s had an example. It was saying that your recipe was supposed to be 13 ounces of pet evaporated milk, 20 ounces of water, two tablespoons of k syrup, and then you mix that up and then pour it into a bunch of different bottles. So they're literally feeding like evaporated milk, water, and k syrup. And so people were, you know, this was going around the internet. I don't know how legit it was to be perfectly frank, but like people are saying, use this right now. Uh, don't do that. Like that's... <laughs> definitely terrible. But when you look at like actual BB formula today, like some of the ingredients are
0: uh, just as terrible. I did a lot of research into formulas. And I thought the ones from the German brands were the best. So I literally flew in German formula. And I think some of the pesticides probably didn't make it into the formula, but they still had seed oils. And one thing I like about this discussion with formulas is so that people can actually pause and think about okay, wait, are my formulas even good quality? And but generally I think all formulas are not ideal. But it's it's similar to the vaccine. I think when people were starting to wonder, should I get the COVID vaccine? It made them wonder about all other vaccines and adjuvants and additives. And I think in a way that was like a hidden blessing with this same formula discussion. Maybe a lot of new moms that will not end up nursing, maybe they can figure out, okay, I am going to make my own formula or I'm going to look for certain things and then try that out. And so I think in that way, although this situation is really, really bad, um, I think there's a hidden blessing or a silver lining in a sense to that. We are, I mean, even on our channel, we're like talking about this when we would have never brought up this baby formula stuff. So right. I'm just going to give a little bit of history. Um, I think history is always so important in terms of nutrition and wellness and regulations and just why things came about because there was no standard, no formula regulations until 1980. It was the first infant formula law. And it only passed because 20 to 50,000 infants were exposed to a chloride deficient soy formula. And some of them ended up getting really, really sick if you look at the nutritional information about that it's because brain growth is vulnerable if there's not enough chloride and if there's a chloride deficiency so that was the first time ever that they decided to have a law because all these thousands and tens of thousands of kids got sick ever since then there's this like basic nutritional guidelines but there's really not much more and i mean we all know that selenium is a good micronutrient that we talk about that's in eggs we talk about how important that trace mineral is but it wasn't even part of the formula requirement until 2015 where selenium is really important again for brain growth and then thyroid health and and there's just rampant things like this where the government finally had legitimate better practices for the manufacturing of infant formula, but before then they didn't have that. And so there would be harmful pathogens in some of the formula feed. And that's the concern of this is we trust these manufacturers to take care of our babies. But if you look at the ingredients, it's horrific. A lot of them use fake sugars, they use maltodextrin, they'll use like low fat or fat free milk, and then they add seed oils, like canola oil or soy oil to balance out that level of fat. I think the ideal situation is honestly making your own formula. And I know it's a lot to ask, it's a very, very tall order to make formulas when you have a brand new baby and you're exhausted, but maybe that's where your significant other or a loved one can help you make the formula. There are better options available. Most parents don't know about it.
1: And what we are seeing, like we, we know in this space, and if you've been doing this, you know, eating this way, you understand that like, we don't buy into the, um, food guide pyramid or the my plate or all of the daily recommendations anymore. Like we know that those government standards of like how we should be daily regulations on what we should be eating is inaccurate. We shouldn't be having like six to 10 servings of whole grains a day. And honey Nut Cheerios are not actually heart healthy, even though they have the heart healthy label on it. And yet we are still allowing the government to regulate these formulas based on some of those outdated nutritional information. And so, we really truly need better alternatives um, moving forward,
0: you know, for, for options for families. I will in the show notes, we'll put two formulas that you can look into. Um, I, I will also link to a long diatribe about why formulas aren't as ideal. There's a lot of scientific literature in it, and then why making your own is better. I'm, we're not going to get into that nuance, but if you are interested, if you have a baby or you know somebody that's feeding, Ah, uh, you may want to just consider it because it's really, really important, yeah
1: all right. let's really briefly talk about um pregnancy and then we'll get into the controversy from the c-section post and stuff that you had. But I think for pregnancy are, you know, I wish I would have eaten, I swear Nathaniel's like blood type is probably Ben and Jerry's from the way that I ate <laughs> while I was pregnant with him. Uh, I wish I could have gone back and done it differently. I think this is another thing where the, you know, some of the cultural, element of like when you're pregnant is to just like give into all your cravings and eat and you know, just you're eating for two and like all of these things. Like I did exactly that. I gained like 80 pounds with probably both my pregnancies. Um, it made it so much harder to get back off again. It was just so frustrating and difficult. It also made me like pretty lethargic during my pregnancies. I wish I would have done better. And like you're, you know, you're growing a person and trying to feed it as it's as healthy as possible. And so obviously eating meat and just, um, you know, not feeding it tons of processed foods and sugars is obviously um, you know, it's gonna be good for you and for the baby and for your recovery. And so that's kind of the blanket statement of like what's necessary. I know that, um,
0: you have some thoughts around like pregnancy and carnivore, like strict carnivore. Yes. You know, I was a carnivore when I was pregnant, so I only had the N equals ones that were shared. And what I have found, and there's no research on this in terms of carnivore plus what you can eat while pregnant, that most people cannot do zero carb on carnivore. I have yet to find one person that has done it successfully um, of all the people I've ever spoken to. And I think that actually kind of makes sense. So let me tell you what carnivore lady told me. She basically, the way she was able to stay carnivore was not going zero carb. And so she drank, I think she said a gallon of raw milk and that gallon will actually be over a hundred grams of carbs. When you are pregnant, your body needs to go into insulin resistance. So it needs to become insulin resistant so that you can grow. Just like when you're insulin resistant, you gain weight. And so in that logic, if you are super, super zero carb and meat only, and you have no carbohydrates, and so your insulin is really low, how are you going to produce a baby? If you are having at least milk or something to stimulate insulin, and not just a basic amount, but a large amount, that will help you support the growth of the baby. So I know in the first trimester, it seems like it's harder to do zero carb, And then maybe in the second and third trimester, they might be able to do a little bit closer to zero carb. But I I think it's really hard to do meat only carnivore. And and when I say that, I mean like no dairy, no no milk that has lactose, because your body wants to grow a baby. And then there are hormones that need that level of, I guess, stimulation and insulin resistance so that you can grow a baby. And so I don't know where I stand with carnivore plus pregnancy. What I've seen is that most people cannot do it. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, go eat pizza. I'm saying you don't have to be like
1: me and eat Ben and Jerry's
0: every day, you know, but you don't
1: have to worry about being perfect. Yes. Yes. So maybe you do a lower carb. Yeah. And you have like lists of the safest plant foods and some carbs. And like, maybe those are things that you incorporate as well. But obviously this is like a very specific niche conversation. So we aren't going to spend tons of time on it, but you can look at the links um, that Judy's, you know, posting um,
0: if you want to have more information on it. Yeah. Dr. Uh, Natasha Campbell McBride. She is the founder of the gaps diet. Her latest book shares like a plant, free version of her diet, which is basically carnivore. We talked about how generationally we can get sick. So your health of your, your health, and then your child's health would only be as good as your health is. And then of your grandparents and so on and so forth. And she talked about in a situation or in a clip I did, which honestly, I was just putting out content. I didn't realize it was near mother's day. I was not trying to be craft. And then at the end of just kind of sugarcoating it, I did not do any of that. I do. But not also too, it. I'll say like, just for Claire, you know, to like,
1: almost defend the people in the comments. Like it's a one minute clip. First of all, like you can't share a lot of context in that one minute clip and her delivery is just very matter of fact. And yes. so, you know, like if I'm remembering correctly, like her delivery was basically like, if you have a C-section, your baby is not as healthy as if you had a natural birth the end. And like, there, all the comments were essentially like I had a C-section. My kid is healthy. Like it was, people took it as a personal call out of saying it, It sounded like you can't have a healthy baby if you have a C-section, which wasn't the message of her whole talk or the message of the interview. But like in that one sentence, it sounded like your baby will not be healthy if you don't have a vaginal birth because it's missing out on certain things for its gut microbiome. And so this is why we wanted to talk about it here, because that's obviously not the the blanket statement. um, And there's definitely more context in that.
0: I mean, she said things that are hard to hear. The first child will get most of the toxins from the mother because your body will always try to protect yourself. And if there's things that it cannot detox or get rid of, it will give it on to your first child. And so I asked her point blank, well, it sounds like your first child will always be the sickest then. And she's like, it's proven in the science where the older child normally has autism and the other imbalances and that was hard for me to hear because i got sick with my first child and i don't know if my first child is not as healthy but she, she's not saying so therefore there's no solution i mean her gaps diet the carnivore cure diet these diets are ways that we can band-aid or heal the situation and she's like you said she's being matter of fact and
1: i think it's also just something that like this is a something that women are just so um, sensitive about, obviously it's so personal. It does feel like, uh, you know, some women take it as a failure while other times it's like, what's necessary when really, I mean, we know the same thing goes with formula. There are situations where it is an absolute life-saving necessity for the mother and the child. And the fact that this C-section process has been invented has saved millions and millions of lives. But we also know that there is not a support system in place for having natural births in difficult circumstances. The knowledge is not there necessarily from a medical standpoint. The support system is not there. It's the same thing that goes, we need this as a life saving option when all other options have been exhausted, right. but the support system is not often in place. And the being an advocate for yourself in the moment is often not as uh, common. As using a C-section, it, the same thing with it goes to formula, where like we should be thankful and grateful for these procedures and these options, but it should be available when we've exhausted all other options, not as a convenience. And yes. I know that people feel very personal when you mention that a C-section can be used for convenience because they didn't, they say, I didn't do it for that. It was a necessary life-saving thing, which isn't very true but it is also sometimes used for other reasons because of schedules and convenience. And I know personally women who have chosen that, like I needed to go back to work on a specific day. I have to have my baby on this day because this is when I have somebody else watching my other kids. So they scheduled a C-section. Like I know that that's happened and it's because of the lack of support and the normalization of this birthing women, birthing babies in our society. And so what we wanted to point out in this is that there can be a gut microbiome difference. Like you're missing out on some things, um, from a birthing perspective, like your baby is not getting certain bacterias and things when they are born that way. And so you might have to make some adjustments
0: in their health, depending on how they end up, I guess. Right. Is that fair to say? I'd like to just take my soapbox right now and talk about C-sections because I've never been able to. I, I don't think I've ever talked about this, even though it's the fir- the opening of the Carnivore Cure book. So when I was looking into C-sections, there are medical interventions that we needed. I fully understand that. And I have a friend that really wanted the natural birth, um, the vaginal birth, and she pushed for I don't know, like 12 hours or longer. And the doctor said at a certain point, if you don't do the C section, you are going to risk harm for you and your baby. And as much as she fought to the last minute, she ended up having to do a C section. And in that situation, I would have done it too, because she needed it from a medical intervention. For my friend, she probably heard all the content about why natural births are the best. And she felt like she was doing a disservice to her baby. But when your life is threatened, you need that level of care. So I think that context matters. When I started doing the research in terms of asthma, that like I was just looking at childhood illnesses and then I went into this rabbit hole of C-sections and what I found was super disturbing. So the World Health Organization, and I know lately we don't really trust them, but still they're, they're a benchmark for certain things. They recommend that a, a country's C-section rate should be about 10 to 15%. Well, in America, that rate is above 33%. So that means we are a first world country. We have a lot of quality resources in terms of financials, in terms of the hospitals, and I guess that level of care. C-sections are the most common inpatient surgery. And so that means that a lot of these are elective. They're not because of medical interventions. My concern is that so many people are electing and it goes beyond just that these mothers are electing it. It The root cause issue to me is that a lot of these hospitals and a lot of the OBGYNs are recommending it because they get more money. The hospitals get more money because you are staying in the hospital longer. Then it requires more medication. You got to get on antibiotics. You got to stay in the hospital a day longer or two days longer. And it's a money-making business. So then the doctors, they also get more money when they they have a... C section but let me so say you
1: Let me say this, though. I don't think it's a frontline nurse that's pushing for that or a frontline um, um, doctor even. I think it's an administrative purposes. Like that's the pressure that the recommendations like when these women hit this certain point, when they do this, like they're pushing. I think it's coming from an administrative standpoint because that's I don't think this frontline nurse is saying I'm going to get paid more by doing this. Like they're trying to do what's best for their patients. I think, though, the problem is the recommendations on where do you draw the line for recommendations amending a C section where you draw the line for pushing a C section I think that comes I think you're right about it being about the money but I think that's coming from an administrative standpoint and not from a frontline worker perspective I do believe that the frontline people they have the best intentions at heart but I think they're getting inaccurate information just like I think your average Joe doctor isn't necessarily or your average Joe nurse isn't necessarily pushing a statin on you because they're going to get X number of dollars in their pocket. It's because the nutritional information about those statins is wrong. And the drug companies have created all the statistics and all the misinformation around it. That's, that's what I think.
0: I personally think it's both. Um, I think the administrative, absolutely. But the research that I did with the the specific doctors. um, So one of the recommendations I gave in the book is if you are not desiring to do an elective, but you're just not sure. And you're open to either, Um, I would do research on the specific doctor and and then they have stats that you can look up of which doctor, which hospital has more elective surgery or not elective, um, just C-sections in general. If your doctor happens to be a high percentage rate of C-sections, they will be more favorable. And it could be that initially that doctor use the administrative protocols and then said, oh, okay, maybe I should do C-sections. But once they have it in their regiment, they're going to keep recommending it because one, they see the moms, they have these safe births in a sense, but then they also get paid a little bit more. These OBGYNs, they do get actually paid more, but it might have really blossomed from the initial administrative. So I think it just goes hand in hand, but my overarching thing is we as a very, very developed first world power, whatever you want to call us, but we also have the highest death rate of all developed countries, yes. even compared to the poorest countries. We are doing something wrong. And, and I would just really hope that young mothers or pregnant mothers would do a little bit more research, just like we have to do a little bit more research about nutrition. I think we should do a little bit more research about birthing and and then formula or breastfeeding. And that's, that's really my thing. It's, I, I think most mothers that do the voluntary C-sections, they have no idea this level of, there are ramifications to that. And are you okay with that? And do you know that you're kind of lining the pockets of certain people? I am not opposed to C-sections if it's for a medical intervention. I don't even think you should try to the point that you're risking your health. I, I do not believe that. But if you're doing it for an el- elective I want to fit my baby into my schedule. Most of us get accidentally pregnant. And just with that, I mean, it's just let nature run its course. I'm concerned with the fact that we have such a high mortality rate for mothers and babies when we are such a developed country. And now we are also doing these elective surgeries that have ramifications long-term in terms of asthma and childhood illnesses and autoimmune. And then even the mother you're in this high stress state, your body needs to recuperate. And then bam, you're being fed antibiotics. Like how does that affect a healing body's ability to heal? And this stuff like really, really makes me sad because I wish all the doctors would give all this information and then let the patient decide and it's not being given. Yeah. It's a very sensitive subject. Obviously.
1: I I mean, obviously if you're listening to this point, we probably haven't made you too mad, but it definitely it's, It's really hard to know how to balance these conversations and even just to bring it up at all, because people are so personally tied to it. And again, like Judy mentioned at the beginning, like, we we just want to talk about like what's ideal. And we all then, you know, need to operate under the, do what's best for our family. And this is, this is the biggest thing that we're encouraging you to do is we do our own research with carbohydrate intake, with fruit. We make our own decisions about fasting and cholesterol, but now we can do the same thing. Like we don't have to automatically go back to believing everything that's in the, um, the mainstream about babies and formula and birthing and all
0: of those things as well. The whole point of the conversation with Dr. Natasha and even us sharing this is even if you don't get to the optimal ideal blah, blah, rainbow unicorn, there are ways to heal a carnivore diet, a meat focused diet, a ketogenic whole foods diet can do so much benefit to a person. And while some of these early interventions may affect us, that does not mean, I mean, if you believe in epigenetics and if you have like the BRCA gene for breast cancer, if you change your lifestyle, you can affect if that gene gets activated. And I, I just wish people will really take that away from this conversation with your baby, with your child, with your health. There's so much of our life that if we think positively and we believe that healing is possible and that we can have good health, even with all the disarray we had for decades. And even if our child was born with C-section antibiotics and formula, that they can actually still thrive. Right. Yeah. That's, I think that's important. And I hope people have listened long enough to hear that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I always say it like that. Like I just get more like, listen, I think that you and I are not shared, scared of sharing uh, information that people aren't necessarily going to like, but I hope that they hear the message and our heart behind it.
0: Yes. Yes. Cool. Thanks guys for listening. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels you can also follow my content on nutrition with judy's instagram youtube facebook and twitter you can find carnivore cure in paperback ebook and audio on amazon i also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates you can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com you can find laura on instagram at laura Eastbath. you can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits you can also find Laura on her YouTube channel, where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's bath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain.